It's mid-May and my absolute favourite time of year. Hawthorn blossom has erupted en masse. Wildflowers of every colour carpet the floor and the freshly unfurled leaves of spring adorn the trees with the most vibrant greens of the year. This is the season to set your alarms annoyingly early and drag yourself outside to enjoy the symphony of the dawn chorus at its most spectacular crescendo. Just listen to it. A 5am reward. So where am I? Well, whilst you might have pictured me in a lavish woodland wilderness, far from humans, I'm actually in a strip of trees just 30 metres wide, with highways to the north and west of me, and Brussels Charleroi Airport five minutes to the south. This is life singing out defiantly from one tiny fragment of habitat. It's both sad and inspiring, because for all its losses, nature is resilient. It clings on, it fights back. I'm in one of the continent's most densely populated nations to see if rewilding still works at a smaller scale, alongside all the challenges humans bring to the equation. Today, I head north to the swamp forests of Flanders, where thousands of hectares of fragmented land are being restored, revitalised and reconnected. Although, after that rather early start, I first need to find a coffee. Pronto. I'm James Shooter, host of the Rewild podcast, and this is Grotenitewald. Is it Ascension Day today or tomorrow? Uh, yesterday. Yesterday? Oh, neither of what I suggested. <laughs> no. <laughs> yesterday, so that's, yeah, then people have a holiday and then they also take Friday. Right, I see. Of course. So a lot of people are coming for the day here after? Yeah. Here you go. Thank you so much. You get a waffle with it as well. Yes. That's okay. I'm in a renovated 17th century watermill, now acting as the visitor centre for Grotenitewald. I found a coffee, courtesy of my guide for the day, Manu Boucher, and the pain of the early alarm begins to fade. Manu's lending me a pair of wellies, and we're heading out with two of his colleagues to explore the squelchy, squishy ecosystem surrounding us. And the goal here is uh, alluvial forests. And as you can see, see, it's full of willow. Yeah, the older coming. And older coming. Everywhere we look, young alder and willow are tentatively poking above the grasses and reeds. A future forest of water-loving trees destined to be knee-deep in H2O for much of the year. Beautiful and banded demoiselles dance beneath larger oak trees and orange-tipped butterflies hurry along above the wet meadows, attracted to the cuckoo flowers that grow here on which they lay their eggs. We pause in a woodland glade so I can learn more about the work being done here. Natuurpunt is a nature conservation organization, uh, the biggest one in Belgium. And we uh, preserve nature, we restore nature. And it's basically uh, volunteers 
volunteer organizations, so the basis of the organization are our local volunteers. They take the initiative and have been doing that for decades already. Uh, first in buying uh, parcels that were really valuable for or, or had valuable nature, trying to save them from um, from damage and trying to uh, make them bigger by buying more and more parcels. Even though Flanders is very fragmented and we can only dream of vast uh, nature areas, it's still a very important um, task that we have to preserve nature here and be a stepstone in, in the entire European nature context. Grotenieterwald is a river valley in the eastern part of the Antwerp province. Now, when I say valley, don't think V-shaped, or even a U-shaped landscape for that matter. The land here is so flat, you'd be forgiven for thinking there was no gradient at all. The very wet ground gives rise to a special kind of woodland, where water tolerance is high. The willows are often first on the scene, a pioneer species whose seed blows in from surrounding areas. The alders that will soon dominate play an important role in the ecosystem, as their symbiotic relationship with nitrogen-fixing bacteria builds fertility in the soil. Where long-standing fragments remain, the ground vegetation is rich. Yellow iris, water tri-leaf and marsh marigold all splash colour on the forest floor. The leaves which fall to the waterlogged ground aren't able to break down due to the lack of oxygen in the standing water. These are perfect conditions for the formation of peat, meaning an intact ecosystem has the potential to be a huge carbon sink, both in the trees and the soils. But there's very little mature alluvial forest left here. People have been doing a lot of things to get rid of the water, to make it suitable for agriculture. So for a very, very long time, the, the, the main idea was to get rid of water as soon as possible, draining stuff. And uh, a lot of engineers have been working on that. And that's also the reason why agriculture was possible even in the valleys, but of course in a very extensive way. And after World War II, with the intensification of agriculture, it moved upwards also, and valleys were uh, partly abandoned. Historic engineering of these lands has had some success for agriculture. Drains have been cut, rivers have been dredged, all with the aim of moving water away faster. But the natural environment has suffered, as has its ability to mitigate the effects of climate change. In heavy rainfall, the water is no longer stored. It's just moved downstream, causing issues elsewhere. In the past five years, three of those have suffered periods of drought in this part of Belgium, where the lack of stored water then becomes a serious issue for farming. And if the peat dries out too, it loses its ability to store carbon. Over the last 10 years, the local government and National Environment Agency have started to realise the management of the past is no longer tenable. They've started to re-wiggle previously straightened river channels, halted dredging to allow sediment to build once more, and added decaying wood to the tributaries. This increases the space for water storage, adds complex structure to the river system, and allows a variety of niches to form, improving habitats for fish, plants and invertebrates. Then also the weekend ponds, it was uh, fashionable in the 60s, 70s of last century to buy 
wet meadows in the river valleys. They became too wet for intensive agriculture. They were sold to mostly citizens who were digging then a pond there, putting the, the soil in a sort of a, a dike around uh, the pond so it was drier and then put a chalet or a, a caravan there to to stay during the weekend and, and plant some trees and and make it their own paradise but of course this there are hundreds of them throughout the valley and also they are they have a huge impact on the on the hydrological situation as rivers cannot flood anymore so the main problem was that the connection between the watercourses and the valley itself, the land habitat, was lost. It's not only sand, I mean they used everything to, to build these banks and that's... Okay, so you don't fall so, Yeah, full of rubble. And <laughs> also, you said asbestos was over yeah, there as well. Yeah, also it was used a lot to, to um, prevent leakage of the pond. They put asbestos walls yeah. okay. around. Starting to understand why it's an issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the main restoration effort here is reversing the changes people have forced upon the land, filling up the ponds and removing the embankments to restore the topography of the valley. In a landscape where the valley sides can be just four metres higher than the valley bottom, every centimetre matters for the natural flow of water. It's an intensive process, but once completed, there's a good opportunity for succession back to alluvial forest. And how fast are you seeing it? I mean, I can see saplings popping up everywhere. But is it is it a, a quickly returning habitat? Yeah, definitely, yes. Even after, well, we, we've done works uh, last year, the end of last year, and if you come to the spots, sometimes it's already full of uh, alder and willow saplings and other plants that immediately colonize the, the spots. So a first pioneering stage that is very promising. As we walk along the raised boardwalks, the orange waters of the Grotenit River, stained by the iron-rich substrate, slices its way through woodland. In damp pasture, the delicate pink flowers of ragged robin sway in the breeze, and the drumming of greater and middle-spotted woodpeckers ring out from decaying poles of standing deadwood. We pause in front of a particularly impressive section of marshy woodland to admire the view. One man who's seen a lot of change in this landscape is Michel van Bugenhout, a long-term volunteer for Naturpunt, who previously worked on neighbouring land for 40 years. There's also a lot of changing in nature. Also a lot of going worse, mostly, but also, also, also a lot of going better. And this area, with the little river here, streaming through it, the Nete, it's uh, since a year, um, 30 years, it's going better. And this is exceptional, but yes, it's okay. <laughs> like you can see, we stand here, you see uh, marshes and, and, and a river who makes turns and a lot of trees growing everywhere. But before, uh, it was farmland and it was even the best farmland because I'm talking now uh, 100 years back. We live here in a part of uh, Belgium where the soil is very poor. There's no humus in it. It's very sandy. And it, uh, it is hard for the farmers to grow some crops on it. But here where the river is streaming for hundreds of hundreds of years, in the winter flood, it leaves some little layer of better 
sediment. Yeah, yeah sediment. Yes, right. So for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, it's growing up. That sediment makes it uh, much more humus in the soil. Only problem was it's uh, wet. But before, before there were no tractors, there was no problem. Everything was handwork. So, but then uh, after the 1900s, uh, and even more than after the Second World War, tractors were growing bigger and bigger. And it, uh, and it was going difficult for the farmers to get uh, the land, to manage the land here. Because the very big tractors, you know, they get stuck. It was too wet. I said, okay, we have an opportunity here. We go buying land there. So uh, they bought a lot of land here. And now this is the result. It's a very nice nature area where nature is increasing, where a lot of uh, birds and animals uh, came here, who we never saw here. It's going the good way. Every acre I've, I've bought uh, makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. A big part of Michelle's voluntary job is acquiring land on behalf of Natripunt to grow Greater Niteroad's impact. He once did this in his professional career, and he now just does it for free. Land ownership in this area is on a small scale, which makes this a relentless task. The best analogy I can come up with for this is if you think of the Grota Niteroad's rewilding area as a thousand-piece jigsaw. When you have all the pieces, it's great. You can create one large picture. But here, the individual pieces are all owned by someone different, sometimes by two or three people, who can never agree on whether to give you their piece or not. Each small segment takes negotiation, time, effort, and money. It's excruciating. And when you finally acquire some of those pieces, many have dilapidated buildings on them, lots of invasive plants to remove, and asbestos leaking into the water. These tiny plots of land require attention before they can be added back into the bigger picture. More time, effort, and money. It's a piecemeal approach, needs must. The jigsaw will be spectacular once created, a return to a naturally functioning ecosystem in all its swampy gloriousness. And what do you get out of volunteering here? Why, why do you keep on coming back? Mike, for me personally, because, um, well, again, given several, several scientific reasons why I would support nature, because climate change and all the things, you know, um, but I was also a nature lover from, from as, as I was a child. So for me, it's, it's a feeling, I think. Um, it's, nature for me is very important and I'm very sad when I see nature, uh, destroying nature and things like that. So I think it's important you can do your role and, and you do something for it. So you feel a, a personal responsibility to get involved? Yeah, too much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will not live long enough, but I'm very curious. What you would see here 50 years when nature has gone its way all this time and would what, be very interesting. What would you hope to see in 50 years' time if, if you could look into the future? We were surprised by some, some nice evolutions like the beaver, for example. Um, in, in uh, I think, three miles from here, the wolves, who have uh, already for the second or third year uh, pups. Uh, sometimes they come here hunting at night, sometimes we, 10 years ago, never would believe this. We continue on our walking tour as Michelle and Manu want to show me the area where beaver have taken residence. I like with the camera, I like it. You can, uh, you can see the family history, you can see 
the well, the first young come out and, and yeah. you can see fightings and things. Yeah. Yeah. You can see the young first come out and if they are some months older, they want to help with uh, taking some branches to the river, but but they don't help. They are like swimming in the way and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> They're such great insights, aren't they? Camera traps, like. Yeah, they were introduced uh, earlier in the in the Campine region, but quite far from here. And since then, they have been spreading automatically uh, throughout the Campine region, and they reached Grotonato out about five or six years ago. And they've been doing very well here, and they are spreading within the area as well. Um, what they can do much more easy than than we well we tried to do it manually earlier to to uh, to stop drainage ditches uh, to fill them or to 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 dam them uh, but they do it in a much more efficient way hold on to your hats because i'm about to go into a 90 second beaver fanboy monologue their ecosystem engineering is life giving carbon storing wetland creating water filtering, flood preventing, drought alleviating, pure, unadulterated beaver brilliance. And I can't think of a species we need to bring back thicker and faster to their former ranges. As a keystone species, they engineer their immediate surroundings into a series of rich wetlands. Now, this is no act of heroism. They are completely selfish animals with only themselves to look out for. They dam small streams in order to raise the water table around them. They can then swim safely between foraging sites or into their lodge, cutting down their period of vulnerability whilst on land. These dams are made from sticks, stones, plant matter and mud, which trap sediment and pollutants from travelling further downstream. The same structures store carbon and even become a mini ecosystem of their own, as they often become vegetated with age. Camera traps in Canada have captured deer, wolves, lynx, and even bears using beaver dams to cross watercourses. The mini wetlands create habitat for a wealth of life, and the extra water storage holds back flows in times of high rainfall, reducing the effects of flooding downstream. In times of drought, the stored water becomes an oasis for the struggling surrounding land, and it's even been shown to stop wildfire in its tracks. For trees that have co-evolved alongside beavers, they coppice when felled, bringing new structure to the forest. For the trees that don't make it, a ready supply of deadwood is created. Those which fall into the watercourse provide shade and cover for small fish, and those that stay standing provide nest cavities for all manner of birds. I am a beaver believer, and you should be too. Now, this is not to say there aren't challenges to face up to. For those living alongside these industrious rodents, flooded farmers' fields, the burying of riverbanks, and the felling of prized trees can all put them into conflict with people. But for me, many of the negative effects can usually be mitigated and the wider benefits massively outweigh localised issues. As Grotenitawald gets wilder, beavers aren't the only interesting species making a comeback. A burbot is uh, a freshwater fish from the cod family and it's a top predator. Um, and it became extinct in Flanders in the 70s because of pollution of the rivers, but also loss of their spawning grounds. They, they rely on shallow places 
and also uh, flooded uh, haylands for um, spawning. So these all disappeared by the by the draining infrastructure. And um, in 2000, no, in 1999, Flemish government uh, decided to uh, start up a reintroduction program. And the Research Institute for Nature and Forestry and the Agency of Nature and Forestry, they tried and they they uh, they succeed in in breeding these uh, species in captivity. And from 2005, they released uh, young burbots into the Nete, into the Grote Nete River at several places. And they did this uh, well years and years. And meanwhile, they were monitoring by re-catching fish if they were able to grow up in the system. And uh, also, after a couple of years, if they found really adult fish, if they bred in the, in the river system again. And they found uh, natural reproduction, so which is a success story here. Blue throat. An attractive robin-like bird, not surprisingly, with a bright blue throat, is a target species here. They already nest in small numbers amongst the willows, and the increase in mosaics of wetland forest and marshy glades will continue to benefit them. But the bird Manu and the team really want to see breeding here is the black stork. Small numbers already call in on migration, but have yet to breed here in recent history. It would be a fantastic indicator that extensive alluvial forests have returned and are in good health. These impressive birds are much warier than the closely related white storks that you might see nesting on chimney tops in rural towns and villages. They need extensive areas of wet woodland, free from human disturbance. If Crotonitawao truly gets its natural ecosystems back at scale, the tangle of willow and blocks of alder growing in swampy ground acts as a natural barrier for all but the most adventurous human. Perfect conditions for the black stork to take up residence once again. So it's an exciting time to be working at Naturpunt, with a real sense of change in the air for the fate of Belgium's natural wildlife. With so many volunteers giving up their free time here, I'm intrigued as to why Michelle thinks they might get so much support. Well, there are also other organizations are very okay, but Naturpunt is the biggest one. They spend a lot of their time and money for uh, buying land, making nature area, um, they try to have some influence on the government to make their laws better, uh, to follow better the European rules. Uh, when that is for, for us in Belgium, uh, is uh, European community is a very good thing for nature protection, and uh, because uh, Belgium was not the best country in Europe for nature protection, so they're forced now by the European community. Very glad to that. <laughs> EU legislation has played an integral part in bringing member states up to speed on biodiversity objectives. This has been especially important when national governments might not have prioritised environmental issues. But the EU strategy so far has been focused on protection rather than restoration. In just this past week, on the 20th of June, the Council of the EU have reached agreement on a general approach for the nature restoration law. It's certainly not a done deal yet, but this proposal would set legally binding targets with the aim of recovery measures covering at least 20% of the EU's land and 20% of marine areas by 2030. 
and all ecosystems in need of restoration by 2050. Of course, more could always be done, but the change from protection to restoration will be a welcome transition in EU legislation. Every year there are more and more people, members of uh, nature organisations. But in, um, in Belgium, um, nature protection is generally not very popular. Not, most people are not very interested because we have uh, a very bad uh, spatial organisation. So a lot of people in Belgium live in the countryside. Um, and they have some garden and, and at, at the house and some green fields again. can be farmland but it's green fields in the neighborhood so they're not really interested in nature there are other countries who would do, who do better in that way so it means also for us um, hard work to get the people with us but it's going better because uh, more people are walking now here and saying oh well that's nice here we'll come back so that's it, right? That's, that's the key challenge, is getting people into this landscape so they can see what's possible. A uh, big challenge and a very important challenge, yes. Yeah, I think um, for me it's always so different experiencing it for yourself. You know, you can look at pictures, you can read about it, but coming and seeing the butterflies flitting about and seeing the wind through the trees, that's different. Mm -hmm. It's hitting people emotionally, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Rewilders like to talk about ecotourism a lot and that's an important aspect of rewilding economics. But getting locals to discover what's on their doorstep is absolutely essential. Normalising nature as part of the everyday routine will only make it harder for others to take it away. It also makes communities think about their green spaces in a different way. Are they truly wild? Can there be more? How can I help? Mark Verachtert is a chairman for a regional Nachopunt group. He and an army of local volunteers work hard on encouraging people into the Grotenitewald. It's an amazing place to discover, unwind, de-stress, exercise and play. Why do, why do people visit here? Why do people come here from the, from the surrounding urban areas? What's, what's in it for them? So, it's so nice, so green, so, so quiet, so uh, yeah, that's, that's what they want to see. They, they want to hear the birds uh, uh, singing and, and yeah, that, that is definitely attractive for them. I've seen lots and lots of families at the, mm -hmm. the visitor centre as well. It's an important place for families to come. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we, we invest in that. Um, our visitor centre has, has a walk for kids and, and it's an attractive uh, walk. I mean, where they can yeah, go through the water uh, and, and so really feel the nature. And, and that's very important that we, we bring these kids in the nature again, that they can feel the nature. Yeah. And do they, they seem to like it, you know? It's, yeah, it's yeah hard definitely. To get, hard to get kids outside now, yeah. so they seem, the families... No, they really like it and, and uh, as long as they can be very inventive in finding new walks and, and go through the nature where it, in fact, should not be done, but it's, it's attractive for them. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a challenge and that's what they look for. Kids being kids. Yes, of course. Down at the visitor centre, where I began my day, there was a fantastic natural playground bordering a small section of a nature reserve. Kids were splashing and splashing and getting caked in mud. It may seem trivial, but this is a vitally important part of desanitizing society. 
When was the last time you poked a puffball or said hello to a harvestman, plopped in a puddle or tumbled out of a tree? Look to our children. They're experts in it. My three-year-old burst out laughing in the garden recently, so I went out to see what all the commotion was about. He was lying flat to the floor, watching a large garden snail slide along the lawn. I got down with him and started to laugh as well. Have you ever looked closely at a snail? They are absolutely bonkers. There's an infinite amount of wonder to discover and rediscover. So let's all dig out our inner child and get looking. Naturopunt has a course for kids where they learn a walk and some of the interesting facts about nature and then they retrace their footsteps with their parents and act as the guide. I think this is such a lovely way to nurture those nature connections. The most attractive walk uh, in in the province of Antwerp last year was the one that we built from the visitor centre through the nature in the in the in the in the neighbourhood. So, uh, yeah, this this is this is important, and of course, uh, sometimes they should. during their walk have a place to have a drink or yeah that's also attractive for them but but okay we try to build that also in the walk so that they can also have a rest here and there and uh, okay combining the combining the world of kind of comfort and nature yes yes of course very important i had my coffee at the visitor center this morning that was vitally important to me naturopunt nature reserves are generally free to access even for non-members I always feel a little perplexed at charging people to visit nature. The fee turns it into an attraction, something to do on a Sunday for those with disposable income, rather than something that definitely should be integrated into all of our daily lives. The visitor centre at Meerhout provides a great starting point for journeying into the Grotenitwout. Perhaps it is the good coffee that draws people in, but once there, it's a springboard into wild Flanders. Visitors might first jump in with armbands, a rubber ring and a swimming hat on, but if they're tempted to return and dip their toe in once more, we'll soon see them take a dive and a deeper connection with the landscape will develop. And do you find people are surprised to see these rich habitats here when perhaps a lot of the surrounding land has been modified? Yeah, 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 definitely. They are always surprised when they come here. Sometimes people from cities like Brussels and Antwerp or Ghent they come here and say, whoa, here, there's still some nature in the camping. Uh, so, yes, there is still some nature and we fought for that over the last uh, 40, 50 years. <laughs> and, and yes, we have, again, uh, nice places to walk and uh, we lost it over some decades, but now the nature is back and, and people come over again. Natural Punt aren't an organisation to sit back and wait for people to stumble upon the natural environment. They put on a huge amount of events, walks and courses for the general public to immerse them in these intriguing pockets of wilderness. A number of volunteers were setting up for a diving beetle identification course when I arrived first thing this morning. Over the summer months, you can watch a film in the forest, join a butterfly and grasshopper walk, detect bats at night, litter pick a nature reserve, and join a workshop on mammals, to name but a few of their courses. The mantra here is the more people learn, the more they respect, the more they'll discuss with others. It's unleashing a ripple effect and empowering people to spread the word. You won't protect what you don't care about, and you won't restore what you didn't know was there. And the thing is, 
you never know who you might inspire into action. Um, yeah, in, in fact, so uh, I started here in, in Gil Merod um, about 40 years ago, a little bit more even, uh, and um, just by following also a course. I started to follow a course with a few friends. It was the end of my uh, study period and so I was looking for something different. And I had been a, a boy scout earlier and, and during that period of boy scout, I, I think I was 14 or so, I also visited um, a, a nature reserve in Flanders here with a guide. And he was so impressive that I really felt nature in my heart. Fantastic. So, it's that, 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 that one nature guide 40 years ago had yeah. an incredible yeah. mm -hmm. connection for you and then that's led on to a 40-year career yeah. here. That's mm -hmm. amazing, the, the power of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what kind of volunteering opportunities are there to get involved in? What can people do here? Oh, um, they can, as, as I said, a lot of them are helping in, in uh, working in, in the nature. I mean... Uh, keeping some uh, roads open for people to walk, uh, uh, planting trees sometimes, not necessary here, but, but yes, other places uh, you have to do it. Uh, I, they, they do a lot. I mean, uh, this is definitely one of the most uh, important tasks, um, but others are, let's say, working in the visit visitor center. So it's, it's completely driven by volunteers. I mean. This is a, a success, really. And and um, but also um, other things, um, monitoring. So the birds, the butterflies. We, we we have specialists in in doing that. I mean, it's important. You know what grows and what flies and what lives. Mark and the Naturpunt team have been interested in trying to get national park status for this area, but the amount of human infrastructure crisscrossing the region makes it a difficult sell, so they now refer to it as a nature park instead. Roads, of course, have their own effects, but canals further restrict matters. The Albert Canal, a 20th century construction connecting industrial zones in the east with the harbour of Antwerp in the west, transports around 40 million tonnes of goods a year on huge container ships. Not only does it draw huge amounts of water from a rain-fed river basin in France, it acts as an impassable barrier for some wildlife. I mean, if we want to have otter back, we have to put somewhere a nicoduct. So now, now, a few weeks ago, we got the support for the from the government. It will come there. Okay. I mean, if you push and keep pushing, it will change. I mean, now they see, yes, yes, we really have to do something. And, and the, the, the next step is here, three kilometers further downwards you have another canal and, and behind that there's another reserve. So also there. So our next step will be we push the government also to put the Nekodek there. I mean, if, if we want to have really connected nature, we have to do that. We got some uh, subsidies from, from Europe and, and Flanders, of course, but, but um, also a lot of, of industry which um, sometimes can benefit directly from people visiting the nature or, or the area, but also because of 
yeah, some compensation that they want to give because maybe they have some impact on the nature um, uh, with their production or, or, or transport or whatever. And then, okay, they want to compensate it in one way or the other by investing in that nature. So this is things that happened already here in, in our area. Um, and we have a lot of big industry next to the canals canals and and uh, most of these factories have already invested eh, and subsidized us yes that's good so that's, that's that, very nice is evolution. that them recognizing that they need to do that or is that something they're kind of pushed towards originally they were asked and they did it and now they are spontaneously coming to us so this is a nice evolution really good because they see that okay climate problems and nature problems we all have to work together to solve it and okay so they want to put some investments into the nature so that's nice evolution and for those relying on canals you know you you need stable climate stable yes. for for water levels yep. and everything so yeah. they they really do need to yes. invest in nature yeah 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 so over the last years they have seen that it will be needed i think we're slowly starting to realize that we can't keep pitching economy over ecology big businesses the world over require a healthy, functioning planet to avoid huge disruption to global economics. It's promising that the industries alongside the Albert Canal are recognising that and paying their dues. But to address my question right at the start of the episode, can rewilding work at a smaller scale? Well, there's certainly a lot of potential here. Areas that were once farmland a few decades ago have reverted back to rich, wet woodlands full of life. It had always been a constant battle, trying to keep water at bay, and a tough way to make a living. When water is allowed to return, it's amazing how quickly the native ecosystems recover. The ongoing issue here will always be human infrastructure. It's one thing pulling down dilapidated cabins and filling in weekend ponds, but another to stop housing developments in their tracks, or control the number of roads crisscrossing the region. And it's these that squeeze the natural environment in the middle restricting it from being able to dynamically move or spread beyond core areas. With the amount of people living here, Belgium will never be 100% wilderness from border to border. But all countries need to play their part in the rewilding movement. Because what's the alternative? It's great to see how much is returning here. And in a way, it's possibly more inspiring to see it happening in such a densely populated country. What Nantrapunt are doing really well here is finding the balance between encouraging people to visit and leaving space for wildlife to return. The infrastructure of boardwalks, cycle paths and play areas provide a freely accessible nature experience whilst leaving the majority undisturbed. People are re-engaging with the wild on their doorstep and that's surely got to be one of the most important challenges to overcome. After all, if we're to rewild the world, we first must rewild ourselves. Thanks as always for joining me for episode 6 of the Rewild podcast. Hopefully a demonstration that all nations have a role to play in returning life to our landscapes. Next month we'll be taking a wee break and returning in August instead. I'm not going on holiday. Our van which we were travelling around the continent in broke down on a French highway 
and is slowly being towed back to the UK. It's only the engine though, so I hear that's not an important part. But we shall return, come rain or shine, and whilst I'm back on home turf, I'll be taking the opportunity to visit Nepestate in Sussex, a pioneering example of what much of the English lowlands could look like. Catch you next time, and wish us luck.